Welcome to the B'nai B'rith International Podcast. I'm CEO Dan Mariashen. Thank you for tuning in today. Today, I'll be talking with Aviva Kempner, an award-winning documentary filmmaker who has spent her 40-year career bringing the stories of a diverse group of Jewish heroes to life on camera. Her latest film project, which opens at the end of this month, is called The Spy Behind Home Plate. The film is about Mo Berg, a Major League Baseball player during baseball's golden age in the 1920s and 30s, who also spied for the United States in Europe. In this episode, we'll be discussing the fascinating story of Berg's life, his secret mission to discover whether the Nazis had invented an atomic bomb, and his storied baseball career, and how he managed to pull off this double life. Aviva is also the creator of films about fellow Jewish baseball star Hank Greenberg and the radio and television star Gertrude Berg. Aviva, welcome to the podcast. Yes, it's wonderful to be here. So before we talk about Mo, let's talk about you. Uh, You're the daughter of a Holocaust survivor and a U.S. Army captain. Uh, How did that upbringing Uh, influence and inform your choice of your subjects? Uh, I was born in Berlin after the war. My father was in the military government. My mother was liberated. I always think of my mother as also being sort of part of the resistance because as a blonde-eyed, blonde-haired, green-eyed Polish Jew, her father got her and a a friend of hers from the town of Sosnovich false papers, so my mother spent most of the war in Stuttgart in a barrel factory, um, pretending to be a Polish Catholic. Sadly, her parents, her sister perished in Auschwitz, her brother survived, and also on my dad's side, he had come from Lithuania um, in the 20s. His mother uh, was murdered by the Nazis, uh, the Eisenstadt group in, in Lithuania. So uh, I came to Detroit when I was a little under four as an immigrant. I uh, My English was made fun of, but you know, I had a strong Jewish identity, more a Yiddishkeit identity. I went to a Shoma Lehem school for a year, and I always grew up more a holiday Jew, but yet my father especially brought us up very proudly about being Jewish. But my mother was one of those survivors who did not talk about the war. And I often say that if my mother had, maybe I never would have gone to make these films. And I remember when I was a young girl vacationing actually in uh, northern Michigan at Cousin's House, reading Exodus for the first time. You know, you always talk about Soviet Jewry finding out about Israel, but I remember, uh, you know, reading about Kitty and Dove and finding out about Auschwitz for the first time because of Leon Uris. And then later on, reading Mela 18. So oftentimes it's these um, fictionalized books that impacted on me. And, and then also in high school, we read um, The Wall by John Hershey, and I remember the English teacher, Mr. Young, as it was yesterday, says, well, what was the dramatic part in the film, in the book? And I raised my hand and I said, well, when they realized they were going to end up in, you know, die in concentration camps. And it was interesting because I wasn't even relating it to my own life. Um, and, you know, I, w- I, I grew up, I went to Michigan, I was on the college newspaper, I, I covered the anti-war movement, and then I went off to Vista um, in, New, in New Mexico, and I was involved in human rights thing, American Indian things. I also got a master's in urban planning, and then I decided to go to law school because, you know, I wanted to fight 
in the courts. And um, while I was in law school, I got, again, very much in human rights, and especially about military regimes in South America. And to me, in a way, it was fighting the Nazis. It was sort of identifying with that. But then a very interesting thing happened. Uh, my parents had been divorced when I was 13, and my dad made Aliyah when, uh, just as I started law school. And sadly, he died actually the day I was graduating from law school. He was about to come to uh, my law school graduation, and then my brother had also gone to law school, his law school graduation. But instead, we found ourselves in Israel. Um, and then I came back to take the bar. I had done very well in law school, and I just don't think I was emotionally ready to take it. In any event, uh, I always say I thank the D.C. bar for flunking me because I had – and actually I took it twice for those of you who are sitting there and saying, why didn't you say it a second time? But, you know, there's a word in Yiddish, and it's beshared, and I think it's really faded that I ne didn't necessarily um, uh, do law. And what happened is I came home that November. My mother's – my stepfather was a professor of history, and – that November, which is 40 years this year, and that's why I'm dwelling on it, is Lucen Dobroszynski had just spoken in Detroit. And I'm sitting there looking through this book called Image Before My Eyes, which is a book about Polish Jewry between the wars. And it just hit me what happened to those people who um, fought, you know, fought the Nazis. And also I had written, I had read Mila 18, Again, Leon Uris, although he keeps on having the shiksa save, you know, the main protagonist, you know, Ari ben Kanan, and was a kitty was her name, and I don't even remember the name of the woman in Mila 18. So in any event, I had this revelation that I'm going to go make a film about Jews fighting Nazis. Never had made the film before, but although I had used films to raise money for human rights causes, and I had sort of helped another group raise money for a film. So luckily, this uncle of mine who had survived Auschwitz became a very, very successful businessman, David Chase of Hartford, and I went to him. And as we call him, Dudunyu really understood what I was talking about. Um, and at that point, I decided I'm going to go make movies about Jews fighting Nazis. And I went to see Itzhak Arad in... Um, he was the head of Yad Vashem, and he handed me his book, Ghetto in Flames, and I decided I got to go make a film about the Vilna Ghetto, although I had intended to make it about Warsaw, and that's mainly because Abba Kovner was still alive, Vitka Kempner, Rushka Korczak, and luckily, and coincidentally, the filmmaker that was recommended to me was Josh Wroletsky, who in fact had made Image Before My Eyes as a film. So again, another besharedness. And we got a big NEH grant, and Ellie Wiesel was one of the readers and recommended that we get funding. So I had very good beginner's luck, and I'm you know, very um, proud of that film. Not only the film, because I'm now going back to try to raise money to digitize the interviews, but can you imagine in the early 80s, we got interviews no one else did about what it meant to fight the Nazis and the, the score of the movie. Because one thing that was very unique about the partisans in Vilna, a lot of them were poets and wrote the best songs, you know, the, including the partisans hymn. And we put out a record that got nominated for a Grammy. So after that, I was thinking, what am I going to do next? And I'm opening up Partisans of Vilna in, in L.A. And I heard Hank Greenberg died. Well, it was a no-brainer. Growing up in Detroit, my father, like a lot of immigrants, Jewish and not Jewish, 
one way you became American was to love baseball. And he conveyed that to my brother and I. And we always heard every Yom Kippur how Hank Greenberg had not played on Yom Kippur. I thought Hank Greenberg was part of Kol Nidra service because that's the story we always heard. You know, that was the tale. So it took me many, many years. It's one of my bat mitzvahs film. It took me 13 years to raise the money, but by then I started a Jewish film festival in Washington. It's now in the 29th year. And it was about, and this is the sense of my career, making films about underknown Jewish heroes that break the stereotypes and fight isms. So the first one was, yes, Jews had fought against the Nazis, but you know, they weren't a nation. It was so hard. With Hank Greenberg's, you know, we have this nebbishy Jewish male character. Hank Greenberg was this tall, brawny, good-looking Jewish man. That's the image I grew up. And he faced anti-Semitism every time he went to bat from the stands, the posing players. And of course, he welcomed Jackie Robinson. And then I wanted very much you know, I got inspired to do a film on Gertrude Berg. And so many people don't know that the first domestic sitcom before The Honeymooners, before Friends, before Seinfeld, was a woman named Gertrude Berg who wrote 10,000 scripts, her husband typed them, and, you know, was this wonderful, warm Jewish mother, not this horrible stereotype we have. We have. But she also had to face the McCarthy, McCarthyism because her husband was... Um, uh, what do you call it, blacklisted. And then we got to Rosenwald, who's another great underknown Jewish philanthropist who gave away $62 million and worked with African-American communities to build 5,000 schools, and that's fighting racism. So this is a long answer. All for, well, to, uh, all, all for, well I, I can relate, I can relate to, to much of what you've said because <clears throat> I was among uh, millions who sat in their living rooms watching uh, the Goldbergs. Yeah. And um, while I, I missed Hank Greenberg's uh, career, certainly uh, Sandy Koufax was, was the same uh, figure for, for us. Um, and uh, as far as Partisans of Vilna is concerned, um, it was a tremendous contribution at that, at that time uh, to, um, uh, to one's self-image uh, in terms of uh, did we fight back? That was always that was always the question, and and I think that into the French fight back. I mean, it's such an unfair a, question. Right, it was an unfair question, and it was always out there. And your film, really, the timing uh, was uh, was really important because you were able to get these interviews at that particular moment. And of course, the rest is is history. Now, I want to talk about um, the uh, the Mo Berg story. Um, would you say that Mo Berg's um, uh, origins were the typical immigrant? story up to a certain point? Right. I mean, the beauty about the spy behind home plate is, again, I can deal with, you know, Jewish uh, roots. Here is a, he had a father who was in the Ukraine who wanted to seek a, a different world, partly because he, he didn't, he was a more modern person and he didn't want to be in a small village, but he also wasn't so inclined to be an Orthodox Jew. And he came to America, then he went to England, went back to America. During the day, he slaved away in a, you know, a laundry shop, and then he put himself through school and learned to be a pharmacist. I mean, it's the classic immigrant story and the classic you know, late uh, 19th century, earlier, earlier 20th century Jewish story. And I think we have some incredible visuals to, for people to really feel like how it was. So his, his kid, Mo, is out there playing baseball. 
And how did how did his father view that? I think to me that's one of the saddest stories. I mean, here I have a father that instilled in me the love of baseball, but never saw any of my movies. Um, Bernard Berg never saw Mo either play in high school. He was very successful player in Princeton, where he also was summa cum laude, a brilliant student, a linguist, and 15 years in the major leagues, and a pretty good utility player, um, mostly a catcher, hitting 243, and as a coach, never would go to one game. He, it was this classic, dramatic, Shakespearean story of the father not approving of the son. And let's be clear, Mo had gone also to law school while he was in the major leagues, even one year coming late for spring training, but then the next year, Kaminsky of the White Sox said, no, 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 you can't come late. I mean, he wanted his son to be a, a lawyer, and his uh, Mo's brother Sam became a doctor, and that made Bernard very happy, and his sister became a school teacher. So, you know, but Mo pursued what he wanted. And of course, the irony is Mo's father died just as he didn't even know his son wound up being in the uh, office, you know, at the, in the OSS, the spy agency. So that's another sad thing. Nor did he know that Sam wound up going to Nagasaki and Hiroshima to test the effects of the nuclear power. So, but you know, I certainly know that feeling because the day I finished Moberg was the day was the 43rd yurtzeit of my father. So something up there, I think they're all up there watching and say, glad, glad you did this film. Because, you know, the big thing about the, um, the big point of the film is we still have to worry about nuclear power. We don't know what North Africa, excuse me, we don't know what North Korea is doing. We don't know certainly what the Arab countries have in the Middle East or Iran or what Russia has. Can you imagine what spies are still there spying? But how did he, how did he enter that particular path? He had a 15-year baseball career. Um, today, he'd be in demand because he was a good defensive catcher. He couldn't hit very well. Or he'd be great for a manager like I have Brad Osmus in the film, who's a also an Ivy Leaguer, former catcher. But while he was Jewish. all of this, the baseball, you know, baseball is something, if you play professionally, you, you really have to focus. This guy went to Princeton. He, he became a linguist. He was an extraordinary individual well, and an early multitasker. How did he do all well, that? Well, listen, the linguist is half the answer right there. When Wild Bill Donovan, under the direction of FDR, President Roosevelt, started the OSS, it was clear the type of people you had to put in that were cool under pressure, that's a catcher, who were very bright, who could speak a lot of languages, knew the customs of Europe, and could grasp, I mean, as Mo was often called, he was called the brainiest man in baseball. And it, it was just a perfect pit. How did, I mean, get, how did he get to the, um, to the attention of... Oh, right. Well, first Rockefeller had used him in South America. They had set up... They, uh, the Americans were very worried that the Nazis were making inroads, as they should have, in South America. So under the guise of studying baseball, and the influence in South America. Mo had gone with Rockefeller and was already testing that out. And when Wild Bill Donovan set up the OSS, he chose Ivy Leaguers, he chose Blue Blood, someone like Schlesinger, Arthur Goldberg, Ralph Bunch, but they also chose Safecrackers and people who had a lot of, you know, we talk about immigrants shouldn't be coming to this country, but really the most successful 
OSS officers were the ones, men and women, who had learned the languages growing up, who were foreign-born or the children of immigrants, and knew the customs. The man who was the head of the Italian OSS, who went around with Mo on some of his missions, came into the army and said, don't put me as in as a private. I know all the maps. I know the topology of Sicily. Make me you know, a member of the OSS. They made him the head. But before he went to Europe, he went to Japan in the 1940s. Uh, now, was that, he was up on the roof of the hotel taking home movies. Now, well, wait, wait, wait. Was that, was he, that? He, <clears throat> he was on a trip, 34. It was like America's last-ditch effort to make good with Japan, who had already invaded Manchuria. And you have people like Babe Ruth and Lefty Gomez and Lou Gehrig on this trip. Mo had a letter from the ambassador to... Um, to Japan that he should be accorded, you know, any favors. I still think, you know, there's a just uh, there's opinions both ways that Mo put together by reading in the paper that he could it was a way he could get into the hospital because the ambassador's daughters had just had a baby that he should take footage. Maybe maybe America would need it. There was nothing we found in all the de declassified OSS papers that Mo already was directed to be a spy, but even when he was a young boy and pretended he was Christian to play on a certain baseball team, I think he already had the makings of disguises, of being a chameleon, of observing local customs, and I think that why Groves chose him to be the nuclear spy, to find out the thing that we most worried about was were the Germans developing the atomic bomb? And the irony in the end is so many of the nuclear scientists, uh, physicists living in Germany were Jewish and they had to leave. And that the, uh, the, the anti-Semitism of the Nazis contributed more to hurting them for, ha for developing a bomb. That's the final irony. <clears throat> but the key part of his efforts to, to uh, penetrate uh, what was going on in terms of, of Germany's plans for the bomb, uh, related to his attending lectures and his getting to know the Heisenberg. famous We Heisenberg. were worried about right. Heisenberg, who himself had been called... The famous German uh, scientist. Yeah, called the White Jew, who had befriended some of his Jewish physicist students, but it still chose to remain in Germany. Um, and Mo, first he went to Italy and found out more where Heisenberg was living, talking to other people. I mean, it was very intensive research because we knew he, he found out Heisenberg was no longer Berlin. He was somewhere else. And then he found out he was going to be in a lecture in Zurich. And that's when Mo was sent on a mission with a cyanide pill and with a revolver to listen to the talk and see if Heisenberg knew anything anything he would say. And, and Mo also had been briefed on physics. Of course, I don't think if Heisenberg really knew how to develop the bomb, they would have ever sent him to that a lecture in Zurich. But anyhow, you have to see the movie to see what happened. Now, he was also um, popular on radio. Tell us about that. Yeah. You know, we have now this man is lasting weeks on Jeopardy. Well, way before you had a figure like that, you had Mo Berg on a program called Information, Please. Uh, um, in the early 40s. And Mo just, you know, there's very obscure questions, and he's just totally nailed it, unless you asked him something about the law. And the commissioner of baseball said, boy, you did more for baseball than I ever did, just by the fact that, you know, he got all these letters, and it was very popular. 
So his career, it's over, it's after the war. What happens then? That's more the sadder part of the film, and it's just more of a postscript. I think often ha times happens, then people go off to war, especially when they're doing spying and have this intense, every minute, every second is a danger that not everyone can adjust to just quote-unquote normal life. He had left being a coach. I think if Mo hadn't gone off to war, he would have been a coach for years, wind up being a manager. He was a little lost coming back. He went to a lot of baseball games for free. And at the end of his life, he was living in New Jersey? Uh, yeah, Newark man. First, he lived with his uh, brother, and then he lived with his sister. But he traveled a lot. Now, supposedly, he did some work for Golda Meir. We just couldn't find any proof of it. And certainly, right after Germany fell, he and some others tried to get German scientists to this country rather than going to the Soviet Union because already uh, the Cold War had begun. The, uh, the pictures and the film footage uh, and the, the interviews that you have in the film are really incredible. Thank you. Um, now, how much was available um, easily? Uh, how much did you have to ferret out? And tell us about some of the people who, who comment on Mo Berg. Right. Well, in terms of the footage, I used a lot of film noir. You know, I think Hollywood oftentimes gets gets it right. So we used, there was actually a film called OSS, and then there's one on the developing of the bomb, interplayed with, you know, scenes of Zurich at night and, you know, a lot of black and white film noir footage that we really love. Um, I was lucky in terms of who I was able to get. I used Brad Osmos, who himself was an Ivy Leaguer from Dartmouth, Jewish and a catcher, now a major, um, manager for the Angels. I also uh, got, I because I live in Washington, there's always someone in Congress in my films, like the Levin brothers mm -hmm. loved uh, Hank Greenberg, so I used them, and Justice Ginsburg for Gertrude Berg. So uh, Senator Markey was a big fan of the Red Sox and the, and the Mo Berg legacy. Um, oftentimes it's children uh, of people who's, you know, like Paul Farah talks about how his father, Antonio Farah, which was one of the big catches to get this man who knew about, you know, they, they were doing great research in Italy, more advanced what was happening in the States in terms of rocket sciences. And Mo got this scientist out um, who was fighting with the partisans at the time he was trying to locate him. Also former uh, Commissioner Bud Selig, as well as the owner of the Reds, excuse me, the Chicago White Sox, who Mo had played with, uh, Reinsdorf. Uh, but more importantly, 30 years ago, two filmmakers, Jerry Feldman and Neil Goldstein, tried to make a film about Mo, and it nev they never finished it. But the footage was put in the Princeton archives. I was able to transfer it get the rights, and therefore we have interviews with people like William Colby or Dom DiMaggio, and I think it really makes the film. But the real hero in this is a man named Bill Levine of Phoenix, because he had loved my Hank Greenberg film, and then after that he had contributed to my other films. And one day he says to me, we're having dinner, Aviva, why don't you make a film about Sid Luckman? And I said, well, I don't like football. He's a famous Jewish football player. Well, what about Barney Ross? And I said, oh, I don't like boxing more. Well, as they say, third is a charm. He said, why don't you make a film about Moberg? So because of Bill Levine and having one funder, we were able to do the film in three and a half years, 
with extensive, extensive research of, you know, there are many people in the film who also try to make a film about Mo. One man, Robert Kaplan, for 30 years he tried. Aviva Miller, who knew Sandberg, who tried. Ray Fox, who wrote a script that Harvey Weinstein had commissioned, tried. Um, Larry Merchant, who's a sports um, caster, and he had tried. Supposedly, Dustin Hoffman and George Clooney tried. So finally, you know, it's the first full-length documentary film that I think deals with a lot of the issues that to today we don't know. You know, if you look at Mo's um, birth date in all the records, he says he's born in March 2nd. Well, you know what? I believe it's March 2nd. We found his birth certificate. He's born May 3rd, and it was recorded May 8th. So even in birth, he's a mystery. And then after he died, supposedly his sister gave a rabbi his ashes to be spread in Jerusalem. We have no verification of that. So my word is Mo's a mystery from birth to death. And some people complain, why don't you have more footage of him? It isn't there. But what is there is this incredible story. You know, one of the most important American spies for America, because Dan, we wouldn't be sitting here if Mo didn't find out, you know, that could verify, you know, what the Manhattan Project was all about. The most important heroes for us is an American Jewish hero named Mo Burke. Well, you've done a really a tremendous job with this, and particularly the research. It's, it's really something to see, and um, I, I highly recommend it. Although, I must say, I'm going to ask you a question, if you're willing to share this with us. Uh, what's next for uh, Vivian Kempner and I? Sid Luckman and, and Barney Ross are very good subjects, but what's what's next in line? Well, if you were to ask me at 21, Aviva, you're going to wind up doing three sports movies, I would have said, I don't believe you. But seriously, I'm right now working on a film on the insidious use of Native American mascots, beginning with the Washington football team. I think there's a lot of racism connected with the team's name here and other places, and um, I, I'm working on a project with others. It was something that was brought to me because when I was in law school in New, Me New Mexico, I did a lot with Native American rights, and I think the time has come that we really address that. And next year is 100 years since women can vote, so I decided to finally sort of use my urban planning background. When they built the Capitol, um, the original architects and the conceivers of it never thought that there'd be women in the Senate or in the House, and there were never enough bathrooms made. And there was a big fight in the 60s, I believe it's the 60s, I'm just starting to work on it, to fight for more bathrooms, and now on the House side for places, you know, for mothers to feed their babies, etc. So I'm going to make a short about how that has changed, and I'm calling it pissed off. Well, good luck with that project, and all that you do, and all that <laughs> you brought you. us, Aviva, all of the these Jewish heroes and brought them to life on camera. Um, the documentary is The Spy Behind Home Plate by Aviva Kempner. Spybehindhomeplate.org. It's open just now in Washington. It's open in New York and New Jersey, all over the country. You also can get hats. I gave one to yeah, Dan right today, yeah, and right who I, whose work I've admired for decades. Too bad your last name isn't Berg, because I've already done three films on Bergs. Actually, someone said, how about Arthur Goldberg? I said, you pay for it, I'd be interested, because he's OSS. And, Another good subject. And, you know, um, Kurt Flood and Case. But, no, seriously, 
as a child of a Holocaust survivor, I guess my biggest mission is we need heroes. There's so much death and destruction during World War II that I, you know, I want to give the world heroes. So whoever graded my DC bar exam, I thank you because without you, you flunking me, I never would have made these five films. Although my mother would have hated that I ever admitted that. Well, please visit Aviva's website. Also visit our website, anebrit.org. Like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter. Subscribe on your smartphone through the podcast app for iPhone or through Google Play for Android. And lastly, tell a friend about us. For my guest, Aviva Kempner, I'm Dan Mariashin. We'll talk to you next time on the B'nai B'rith International Podcast. See you at the movies. Bye.